This podcast is sponsored by the IAFF Financial Corporation. Working with Nationwide since 2003, the IAFF Financial Corporation provides IAFF members with access to deferred compensation plans, Roth 457s, post-employment health plans, and health savings accounts through the Frontline Program. With over $12 billion in assets under management, this program gives our brothers and sisters choices in their financial health. Visit IAFF-FC.com for more information. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the IFF Podcast. Mark Treglio here, uh, along with Doug Stern. How are you today, Doug? I'm doing good. How are you, Mark? Doing great. Great. Uh, Coming off a great four-part series on cancer awareness uh, from the cancer uh, podcast that we did in January. We got tremendous response on that. I want to thank everybody who listened in and participated in all of the cancer awareness stuff from the IFF. Uh, Today, we're shifting gears on this episode. Wanted to go back uh, a little old school and talk about uh, history. And a lot of times I feel that, you know, as firefighters come on the job and they progress through the ranks, they forget about the history. A lot of times you'll you'll talk about recruit classes and the benefits that are won by unions that recruits really think that that stuff just falls off trees and the city's glad to give us a pension, glad to give us a contract in many cases or a nice pay raise. And that's not the case. And those benefits that are won are, are hard fought and they're won by unions. And today joining us are two hardcore union leaders out of Memphis. And we're going to talk about a firefighter strike in Memphis in 1978. Uh, Firefighters don't strike anymore. There are very few locals that have that in their arsenal to do. But uh, there was a time and place where there were strikes. There were firefighter strikes. And, you know, people had tough decisions to make back then. So I want to introduce our guest. First guest is IFF 14th District Vice President Danny Todd, currently the longest serving senior member of the IFF Executive Board. And Local 1784 president out of Memphis, Thomas Malone. Gentlemen, how are you today? Doing great, Mark. Glad to be on the show with uh, you and Doug today. Yeah, great. Uh, uh, Looking forward to this. This is a lot of history, as you said. So before we jump into the strike, let's talk about your backgrounds on the Memphis Fire Department. Uh, Just tell us when you came on the job, where you served, some of the the good things you got out of the job, and and, uh, where it's taking you today. All right, this is uh, Danny Todd. Uh, I came on in uh, 1972 going through rookie school. My uh, first day on shift was uh, January 1st, 1973, and that's when the Memphis Fire Department actually went from a uh, 72-hour work week to a 56-hour work week. And uh, I was assigned to uh, a truck company, at headquarters, uh, that was Engine 5. Engine 9 was also located there. And uh, uh, my early years, I worked there um, at that. uh, Later got moved around, worked mostly downtown, and then uh, in the latter part of my career, uh, moved out to uh, other stations uh, and then uh, eventually made my way to the Union Hall. Uh, The... Local here has union release, so when you become an officer of the local, uh, you're on release and uh, work out of the union hall under the direction of the fire department director. Uh, 
one thing I would state is to for my union career, I was lucky that I uh, was sent to headquarters. I certainly didn't know it at the time. But as it turned out, uh, the leader of the strike in 1978, our president, Curon Huddleston, who later became 14th district vice president preceding me, uh, was there in that engine house. And also Sam Posey, who later became president of the local, uh, vice president and then president of the local and also state association president, was at that same engine house. So it's a little, uh, I guess, lucky for me that uh, here in in one engine house in the city of Memphis, uh, two international district vice presidents and a state association president came out of the same fire station. Did you guys all work together on the same shift? Yes, we did. No, we all worked together on the same shift, and they're the ones that encouraged me. They said, come on, rookie, we're going to the union meeting. And that's how I got started. So You were going to union meetings whether you wanted to or not, little did you know. <laughs> they said, here's the card, sign up, we're headed to the union meeting, and, and uh, you need to come with us. And I did. Great. Yeah, this is Thomas Malone. Uh, I came on back a little before Danny. I came on in 1969. We actually back then did have a 72-hour work week. We had two shifts. I went to uh, what was called Midtown at Fire Station 7. Back when I came on, you went through rookie school until 4 o'clock, and then at 7 o'clock, you went to the fire station and worked from 7 to 7 the next morning, got off, got a shower at the station, and went back to school the next day. So we were, after about two weeks in school, we started going to the fire station at night and working through the night. So we got an early experience in firefighting and, and actually some of the shit that they, they, they used to do to us. So I was fortunate to have a, a large fire station. Uh, there was three piece of equipment there. Everybody there was fairly young except the, the, the captains at that time. And, uh, it was one of those stations where, and the battalion that we were in was fairly young cause it was an active battalion. So there was a lot of union stuff. It actually came about with the fact that we just got tired of what was actually going on. So, you know, then we started talking behind the scenes and, and, uh, uh, actually I became, I signed up, I uh, came on in 69 and I signed up as an IFF member in June of 1970. So, uh, we, we actually were chartered in 71. So for about a year, we were signing people up, going behind the scenes and, and, uh, and working and, and, and then actually, uh, some of us were getting fired for going to union meetings. So, uh, but, uh, it was a, a pretty active time. It was just the right time. We had a lot of people that were coming back from the service being in the military and a lot of people that came back, uh, from Vietnam. And it was one of those times where people weren't used to taking the stuff that the fire department did. Now we took it, but we were steady working on trying to figure out how we were going to to fix it. We didn't know anything about the IFF until, oh, probably six months later. So that's kind of how we got started. I, I worked there and, and was transferred just prior to the strike and uh, went to another very active union house. So I, like Danny, was fortunate to have a, uh, not necessarily what I would call strong union people, but they were strong people that, that supported the union. So it's kind of my start. And, and then the rest has been just a windmill for the whole time because some of the old rules and regulations that we worked under, such as they would uh, 
you had to do stuff off duty and everything else. And if you didn't do it, then they suspended you. So a lot of those things precipitated into the union being formed and, and, and having a huge turnout at the union meetings, as Danny just talked about. It was not uncommon in those days for us to have a thousand people at the union meeting. Wow. What exactly do you mean by this, that you weren't going to let them get away with the stuff they were actually doing to you? Well, I mean, like you, you had to be there. We, our shift started at seven. You had to be there prior to seven. You were lined up in full uniform outside the equipment for five or 10 minutes. And you were, you were checked out like it was a military thing. The, the rules and regulations were just so tremendous geared towards management. We had to wash the tires every day, whether we made a run or not at 430 or four o'clock rather. We had, on in inclement weather, uh, we had to hose the equipment down, chamois it off after every single run. So uh, I was at an active station, and, and so you were up, uh, when you started running at night, you spent all your time chamoying and, and, and cleaning off the equipment. Then you had to get on a creeper uh, like a mechanic, get up under the equipment and coal oil everything up underneath there with a coal oil rag while they sit out there and gave you territory schooling but the captain would be in a chair just things like that you had to when you got off duty if they decided you needed to go inspect buildings we went and inspected buildings if uh, they thought that there was some plugs that needed flushing uh, the next morning uh, they would send you to a certain area to flush plugs and so just just things like that you had no 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 time off you had what what we called a Kelly day but you couldn't leave the house. So uh, all of these type things that people don't even realize nowadays that that occurred, the things that they think is, uh, are terrible now uh, seem minuscule and sometimes in what we used to do. It was a paramilitary organization with very, very strict guidelines from the top. And if you didn't like it, I was fired twice at fires. The chief got mad because he didn't like what was happening and fired the whole company. Like in the middle of the fire? Oh, yeah. They, they fired you at the fire. You know, get that company out of here. You know, it's just... But they'd usually hire you back, uh, you know, by the next day. So the worst time of my life is when I got fired and, and we were keeping the union a secret. And, and I got fired at 10, 10, 10 in the morning. I sat at headquarters all day and, and the chief came in and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you just fired me. I need my job. So he made me jog from headquarters where Danny used to work down to Midtown where I worked. So <laughs> just to keep my job. So it was not a hard uh, push for the young guys like me that we, we, we were either going to quit or, or do something to make things better. And thank God we chose to make things better. And, and Doug, right. when, he, when he says he had to do inspections on, on his day off or flush hydrants on the day off, that's without any extra pay. So just as you leave the firehouse here, catch these plugs and have a good day. Or we're going to inspect this building tomorrow, uh, especially downtown. We're going to do this building inspection, and we expect you to be here. And uh, you had to show up uh, with no pay. And that was wow. a that, that was a regular thing on Sunday morning, where the old captains didn't want to go home and work wake their wives up. So usually at seven fifteen, seven twenty, we would leave to go to one or two buildings and come back and be through by about nine o'clock. Also, the, wow. the administration decided uh, if they the incumbent mayor, if they wanted you to go out oh, and hand, hand out flyers on the corner for the incumbent mayor, you were told to do so. They couldn't really tell you who to vote for because obviously that's uh, your choice, but they would tell you who to work for. 
in the old days, whether you liked it, liked that politician or not. Wow. And now, now we have trouble even doing it. Back then you were forced to do it. Oh, yeah. You you both probably remember the FDIC uh, conventions. It, it, it used to be here in Memphis, and you were assigned uh, a job to do during that convention for, uh, uh, on your days off. And, and uh, mine was to use my car and drive back and forth to the airport, pick people up, and bring them back to downtown. I usually got assigned to that because I talked a lot. It was it was hilarious. I mean, and now that you look back on it, I mean, and it was it was kind of a routine thing, you know. Until we got the union going, actually, when the union actually got formed, that's when we the chief that was so hard, who actually was a good chief and on the fire grounds, that's when he actually turned around and said, you know, there'll never be a union here. That's what he fired me for because he said there'd never be a union here, and uh, he actually ended up losing his job when we actually got the union formed. So, Mark, back to your your question. Yeah, we've read about the 1920 strike, but uh, we were original charter member of the International Association of Firefighters, Local 39, and they did have a strike right after that in 1920, <laughs> and they brought in uh, a bunch of volunteers and uh, and broke the union. Then in the 30s, there was another strike, and uh, again, they broke the union. And then, then I think our history here as Local 1784 now goes back to the uh, 1968 sanitation workers' strike where Martin Luther King was killed. And then uh, just a few years later, we formed, or as Thomas said, the guys that are on the job then decided, hey, look what the sanitation workers did. It's time for us to s- step up and, and get our union going back again. It took a lot of courage for Thomas and uh, the guys that were on the job then to uh, push for this and, and uh, get the local going again. But uh, I think uh, the birth of uh, public employee unions in the city uh, goes right back to the sanitation worker strike yeah. of uh, 68. Yeah, just prior to me coming on at 69, in 1968, there was another push to try to form a union, and they, they beat that down. And it was a perfect storm after that because in 1969, we were going to have an annexation out in Whitehaven. And and so we had to hire multiple classes. So in the year 1969, we had three or four rookie classes that were hired that year. And so we had a lot of people, a lot of young people that that had just coming back from the union, I mean, from the service or had worked uh, uh at, at possibly at a truck line, you know, when they were younger or, or other places that were acclimated to a union. And so that, that I believe that that year right there with the influx of people is, is the reason that the union actually got footing and, 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 and move forward. Uh, as far as the strike, the, it was really amazing just a few years later, how even the people that were not young, uh, even though I had a few years on, we had people with 19, 20 years that struck that were still remembering the old days and was, was very, very strongly, adamantly opposed to anything going back to those days. So that was one, uh, one thing that was really fascinating back then was a 19, 20-year guy put his job on the line to go out with, you know, all, all of, all of uh, us younger people. Well, that's that's good. Uh, it's awesome material right there, material. What I'd like to get into is, you know, we've, we've done a great job on the history of, of how the conditions were in the 60s and the early 70s. But 
things apparently didn't get better. Things apparently got worse. And as the strike came, both of you were pretty much seasoned veterans by then. Uh, what were some of the factors in 75, 76, 77, and, and 78 that really led up to this being the final straw? That's it. We're striking. I'll, uh, I'll take the lead and then let Thomas come in. But I think uh, this built up over a number of years. It yeah. wasn't just a one-issue thing. Uh, we actually got a contract uh, back in, in 71. Uh, we're building on that contract, negotiating with the city. But the way negotiations work, the city would start negotiations uh, sometime around June the 1st. Uh, now, keep in mind, the city's fiscal year is uh, July 1st. So they start a new budget or a new fiscal year, July 1st. Well, we were negotiating right up until June the 30th, and the budget had already been set. So by the time we finished negotiations, the budget had been set and the salaries had been set. That was one thing. The salaries were low. Uh, I made $753 a month when I came on. So it was a, a wage that wasn't a livable wage at that time. So the way they negotiated was one thing. And then I think one of the big pushes for the strike, which we get into the strike, was in in 75. uh, I think our union leader at that time, our president, made a mistake and agreed with the city to allow a vote on whether our captains would uh, remain in the bargaining unit or would be removed from the bargaining unit. And they dangled a little small raise in front of the captains. And the union agreed to allow that vote to take place. And they did vote vote to get out of the bargaining unit. So uh, that led up to another vote that the city attempted to do in 1978, which we can get into when we get into the 78 thing. But trying to bust the union, I think uh, Mm -hmm. that was what they were attempting to do. Because in 1978, when they attempted without the cooperation of the union and, and, uh, and we said we wouldn't even recognize their vote uh, on the lieutenants uh, getting out of the bargaining unit. Then um, what they were attempting to do, all three of our principal officers of the union were lieutenants. So it's not hard to see what their attempt was, divide and conquer and make this union go away. So there's a lot of frustration built up with each period. Each year we came forward uh, with the amount of wages they were offered, the way they were offering the wages. Uh, We still had a lot of discipline going on within Mm. the department. Working conditions improved some but hadn't improved a, a whole lot. And so uh, they just had enough. And so it came to a head in 1978. It all came to a head at, uh, at one time with the, with the frustrations that occurred. Well, well, you have to remember one thing, as I stated earlier, just how beat down we were from a standpoint under certain conditions in certain engine houses, you hated to come to work. I mean, you were so fearful of, of the way you were treated. But as we started negotiation, just to show you how bad off we were, the number one thing that was on the first contract we had, the number one item to be negotiated was hair and mustache. The city did a cartwheel on on that one because they weren't giving any raises anyway. As Danny said, I started off at $540 a month, and, and, and usually they would take some of that through some form of disciplinary action, suspensions or whatever. But it was uh, each year we would go into negotiation with a promise that this would be our year. And as Danny stated, it was never even an option. The budget was already set. And this this went on for about four or five years 
when we, as Danny stated, we, we lost the captains out of the union, but we still had some that were loyal to the union. We had a bunch that was not. So therefore we went right back. We were regressing back to a lot more disciplinary action because they wasn't in the union. So the whole thing there was the whole attitude on the job was we don't care. You know, it, it, it each year came along. We had multiple, multiple thoughts. One was we don't really give a shit anymore. And the other one was, well, I just have to go nail some nails or cut some more grass or something to try to make ends meet. And although those, those factors eventually clashed because we were, we, we were able to get some, a few things in the contract that were union benefits. So then we had a big divide of union and non-union personnel. So we had to overcome all those things and the city played it right to their, their advantage on everything they did. And, and of course, then you throw in promotions and, and that, that everything just went to hell in a handbasket there. So the one thing that really struck me that I'll never forget was when the IFF came in and we actually did form uh, under the IFF and they came in and there was a big piece in the paper, IFF steamrolls into Memphis and all that. And then the IFF went away and we didn't ever see anybody. We didn't, we didn't know enough about anything to know that we were supposed to call and get somebody down here. And so we didn't see any IFL personnel from 1971 until 1977. So we did not have the benefit of the knowledge of the IFF. Obviously, they were not as strong as they are today. But once they came into town and we really started working things out, then then it was just a matter of time for something was going to be done and it was going to, something was going to come to a head because like Danny said, everybody had had enough. We'd gotten to the point where there was other jobs around and, and uh, it wasn't like a lot of us were dedicated to the fire service. Like in, in a lot of cases, you know, up North where the, you know, your, your family was firefighters in front of you. I, I didn't know anything about the fire department. When I came on, it was just a job. So eventually you could see, you could see the, the, the 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 steam starting to, to come off the sidewalk and it's starting to build up more and more and and then 78 was just the perfect storm that hit so let's talk a little bit more about that perfect storm and you know there had to be the final straw where the leadership just went to the members and said that's it we need to do this and and how did that vote go down well, actually, and you said earlier uh, we were seasoned veterans. I guess we got seasoned real quick, but I was on the negotiating team, and I'd only been a union member for uh, five years, and Thomas had been on less than 10. Uh, we had a, had a mix of personnel there. I think we had the older guys who had been through a lot of, of the crap in the 60s and us younger guys who came on and, and uh, really didn't like the working conditions and listened to some of the older guys' stories and – and what was happening. But the final straw, I think, was it was a buildup. And we kept telling them, you got to do better than this. You can't just throw the number out on the table. Uh, you know, the last day of negotiation said, that's it. That's all you're getting. And not listen to us and, and not really uh, try to make things better for us. So I, I think the uh, final straw was the, them trying to take a vote to get get the lieutenants out, the city attempting to do that. Uh, we saw that that how that game was going to be played out with all three of our officers, as I said, being uh, uh, lieutenants. 
So we couldn't reach an agreement at the table. We wanted to do a one-year uh, contract, and the city wanted a multiple-year contract, but we wanted a wage reopener, and they didn't want to reopen wages, so we knew they were trying to lock us in. So we came back from negotiations that afternoon. There was a meeting. Uh, we were at a labor temple at that time. It was a round building where most of labor organizations were in the same building. Where is it? Where is it? Rainbow. Including some, uh, yeah, that was 2881 Lamar, correct? Yeah, and uh, so we had a meeting hall that would hold about a thousand people when negotiating team walked back in. And we had at that time, we had uh, Lou Peronis, the international, used to have a staff rep program prior to our district field service rep program. We had staff reps, and Lou Peronis' staff rep was with us, and uh, the place was packed standing room only, and uh, Kieran Huddleston, our lead negotiator president at the time and later became 14th District Vice President, came in the meeting hall, and uh, he had an old boom box with a tape. And he hit that tape and put the microphone there, and it was Johnny Paycheck saying, take this job and shove it. So I don't recall there being uh, – uh, there was a formal vote, but let's put it this way. It wasn't a secret ballot vote. It wasn't a show of hands vote. It was how many in favor, and uh, that's all you needed. It was like screaming, yelling, standing on chairs. We got pictures, uh, people standing up in their chairs. It was uh, They were ready. They were tired of it. They were ready for it. So the strategy then became, uh, and I'll let Thomas talk about that, how we worked the strategy and how we decided the ultimate decision to go on strike was, uh, yeah, was, wasn't made until the next morning. This was June 30th. Uh, of course, our contract expired. New contract supposed to go in July 1st. We couldn't reach <clears> an agreement. So I'll let Thomas tell you how we decided <laughs> when the ultimate decision to go on strike would be made. Let me regress just back a minute, uh, guys. Uh, if you you have to understand, in those days we were all young, and 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 uh, the union meeting night was the way a lot of the married guys got out for the night. We would have the union meeting, and then there were places around town that we all went drinking, and and it was you know usually drank and fought, and and, and went back to work the next day and laughed about it and everything else. Well, a lot of them started drinking before they got to the union meeting. And so this particular night, the negotiating team was downtown and, 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 and I was like a station steward. So we were milling around. There was tons of people there. As Danny said, there was well over a thousand. It seated a thousand and we've got pictures where all those standing room around the wall. So I stood at the back by design and was going to talk on the mic, but to back that up, Early on, we had two guys come in here before Lou came in, Charlie Kasut out of Florida and Percy Clark out of Canada. And they were actually assigned here in Memphis for a while. And basically, they were helping us recruit and do the stuff. And and we would have meetings every month prior to this, and they would be there. And this this everything was building up, and everything was building up. And, and, and uh, so that particular night... Well, it was as I look back on it, it was really hilarious. We we didn't like long meetings because the whole purpose was get to the meeting, get the business done, get out of there and go drink and 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 drink most of the night. 
So uh, this particular night, the negotiating team was down, and everybody was milling around, and there was a lot of discussion. Look, if they don't do this, if they if they do this shit to us this year, we're gonna strike. And nobody even, but we had we had actually prepared some things for the strike, such as we had signs ready and different stuff. Nobody really thinking we would strike. And it was that night when Danny and Kiran all came back and he put the uh, the the microphone to that boom box and and it said, "Take this job and shove it." I mean, the place went wild. And and Kiran had brought another union leader back with him that night. He was the president of ASME. And when we went through the when the negotiating team told what what had gone on and everything, and they let the reverend, he was a he was a reverend, and they let him talk. And he got up and was talking and he got excited. And all of a sudden he rips his sports coat off and rips his towel off, throws it back in behind him and says, we ain't going to cut no grass. We ain't going to pick up any garbage, and the monkeys are going to go hungry in the zoo. I'll never forget that long as I live. Everybody went nuts. The whole place erupted, you know, and everybody was high-fiving and jumping around. And and you heard Danny talk about Sam Posey, who was our vice president at the time. He, he and I were best of friends. He says, Tombo, you better get up there. So I got up there and got the microphone, and I started hollering, whoa, whoa, point of order. I didn't even know what none of that meant. We got everybody quiet, and I said, I know that we're talking about striking, but I know everybody's going to be drunk tonight, so I want to make sure that we're going to do this right. So we're going to – I make a motion. We report back out here at 5 o'clock in the morning. If we get a big enough turnout, then we're going to strike. If we don't get a big enough turnout, we're going to work. So everybody kind of calmed down and said, that makes sense. So we did it. As Danny said, there was no official votes. Everybody just – because you couldn't hear – that next morning, we met back out in the parking lot, and myself thinking we'd never go on strike, and cars started coming from all directions at 5 o'clock in the morning, and we had over 1,200 people show up that morning. And 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 there wasn't no official vote, never. Uh, we said, we're on strike. Call the stations. Tell them to get ready. Here we come. So that's how the vote went, and that's how it came down. So it was something else. Yeah, our, our house stewards, as Thomas was one, started uh, with instructions to call the stations and inform the on-duty crews we were on, would be on strike. As he said, that we gathered at 5. This is probably around 6, 6.30, when we knew we had an overwhelming support yeah. to do so. Word <clears throat> went out uh, to the fire stations, and uh, a guy started uh, leaving the fire station even before their 7 o'clock shift ended. Yeah, we, we, so, everybody went by and picked up a sign, and your job was supposed to report to the station you were assigned to except for some of the stewards who were going to yeah. be runners. But. Immediately stopped. You immediately put on your union shirts yeah. and uh, got your sign, and you were responsible for setting up a picket at your fire station. So the picket started. Each station set up their own rotation system on uh, picketers, so we had somebody there 24-7. So that's kind of the night it all happened and the next morning uh, how it happened. So now this strike is underway. How were the early days of the strike? How was it received? How did the fire department even operate? Well, we had early days. I think we were setting at around 1,200. Oh, no. Union. Way more but there were 1,600 personnel on the fire department, just over 1,600. The newspapers reported they had about 200 people 
remain on duty. Most of those were chiefs and uh, captains. captains, some uh, non-union people who never joined in Tennessee, uh, even back then, uh, were under right to work, so you didn't have to be a union member to benefit from the bargaining unit, uh, what you got. So some lieutenants were not in and others. So there was some, but we gathered, I think our membership increased in the first two days of the strike. We signed up nearly 200 to 300 new members. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the way it went in the early days. Uh, Fire started almost immediately, of course, in the media and uh, police director, we were accused of setting fires, which uh, uh, was not true. Vacant houses started on fire, and then a teenager started. Uh, later on, we learned it was a teenager started a fire at one of the public libraries. And uh, so by noontime, fires had started. Within uh, three days, I think there were over 200 fires in the three days we were on strike. We went back to work July 4th under a court order, but we were on strike from uh, July the 1st through July the 3rd, had over 200 fires. They had about 200 people working in at that time. I'm not sure about the amount of stations. We were about 46 to 48 fire stations. Right? 44. 44. 44 fire stations. So a lot of fire stations were not manned. But uh, we, we, uh, we had what we call uh, goon squads. Uh, we had pickup trucks and we, so, so we, we, we had uh, uh, equipment to, to actually respond on hospitals, nursing homes, and a few places like that. And, uh, and we, had, we had radios, so we, we knew where the fires were, and they had the chiefs and captains. And then they had some, as Danny said, some non-union. Then we had some people that were supposedly in the union that had, had gotten calls from captains and chiefs saying, hey, you need to come and work because it's going to decide on whether you get promoted. So uh, the promotion was a big deal. We had several people out there, but they gave, but they were worn out really quick. As Danny said, the fires were overwhelming. A lot of the old captains, we thought it was old then at 50, but they were out there and they weren't used to none of that stuff. And it was in the middle of the summer. So they were on duty indefinitely. So they were making fires all day and fires all night. And they just wore out. I never will forget one of them was on TV, and he says, I'm tired but proud. I'm, and, yeah, I, and I want to make that point Thomas made. We took some air packs from the fire stations, and we took some turnout gear and uh, had monitoring or radio dispatch. And so if there was a report of a person trapped or he said it was a hospital or what else, uh, we were responding and getting there before the uh, High rises. before the fire department crews. And if there was a, a nobody – uh, there was no loss of life during those three days from any of the fires. And so we responded to make sure the citizens had some level of protection. If it was a vacant building, we didn't do anything. So, so you went from July 1st to July 4th. What gets the deal done? What's the deal that gets made to bring you all back to work? Well, oh. the, the story continues, Mark. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Wasn't the deal done then? We that was a court order. We talk about the strike Actually, there were two strikes in 1978. So the continuing story is we go back to work. 
they're going to bring in federal mediators. Uh, there were religious leaders that had got involved and uh, some business leaders had been calling the mayor's office and said, you know, we need to solve this. So they promised for discussions. And we were under a court order with heavy fines if we didn't go back to work. So a lot of our guys didn't want to go back, but under the court order, we went back and uh, continued with discussions and negotiations. As uh, Thomas said, we had the other uh, labor organizations. The two other biggest ones in the city representing public employees was ASME representing the sanitation workers and the police union who weren't affiliated with any uh, national organization. <clears throat> so the police union didn't go out on, on strike with us. Uh, sanitation workers did not go out on strike with us. So then uh, we rock along and uh, discussions are continuing. We still can't reach an agreement. We are in mediation. And then come August, I'm not sure about the exact date, but uh, early August, about August the 13th, I think it was, or 12th or 13th, right around in there, the police union decided to go out on strike. So, uh, and they wanted us to go out with them. He said, well, you know, we'll, we'll, We'll wait. We'll see what happens. So they went out, but the city had uh, had prior knowledge that this was going to happen, and they brought in the National Guard. So we had National mm -hmm. Guard troops all in our streets, and, of course, uh, the police stayed out. They then started throwing up picket lines in front of our fire stations, and uh, when we, we would not cross the picket line. So when we made a run and came back, if they were still picketing that fire station, we slept in the streets and uh, we slept on our fire equipment in the streets. We refused to cross the picket lines, even to pull back into the firehouse and we'd go to local restaurants and get something to eat. So after about three days of the police strike in, in that August, uh, we took another vote as, as a union and, uh, the police union, it appears they were getting ready to break the union. The crime rate had went to zero. Things were pretty calm in the city. National Guard was here. And uh, National Guard was in the streets. And so we said, you know, we can't let another public employee union go down. If they go down and they pick them off, then they're going to come after and pick the rest of us off. So, one, we still didn't have an agreement. And, two, with the dire situation as it was, uh, we voted to go out again. And uh, there was, so we had a, a second strike and uh, that time we were out, we went out on the 15th and I think the final agreement was finally reached on August the 18th. We reached an agreement with the we city. I think the 13th. I think it's yeah. five days. Yeah. Well, one of the things that Danny was talking about was when the police were getting ready to go out, as he said, we were basically living in the streets because we wouldn't cross the picket line. So they brought the National Guard in and they took over our fire stations. So... When we did go out with the police, that's when it got a little bit racy because we started having numerous fights. The old crew was backing back in uh, at my station. Uh, one of the guys that didn't go out this time, he was a driver, and he had his arm hanging out the door, and somebody hit him with a baseball bat, broke his arm. There was all kind of other stuff went on. The fire started going out of control at night there. So we had fire and police both out, and it was uh, that's when things got a little bit rowdy. We had the cops with us; uh, they were going around with the national guard. They had set a limit on how many you could be at have at the picket. They were arresting firefighters and police officers. The management was with the with that national guard. Yeah, uh, they arrested numerous members uh, that were picketing, even though we had an agreement with the city 
that we could have so many picketers right. at each firehouse. Uh, we had an agreement with that with the city, but the city was under curfew. So then they they started sending around uh, uh, police command uh, and started arresting our members and uh, taking them to jail. And then uh, the union had to go down and uh, bail our members out of jail because the city reneged on their agreement uh, on the curfew violations. And they were, they, they were arresting, uh, uh, they brought in some state people and different stuff. To, one of the stations that I was hell picking at, somebody set it on fire and myself and another guy put the fire out and they arrested us. Said we set the fire and we got scared and, and put it out. <laughs> they, you know, they were just using anything that they could to, to, uh, you know, to, to load people up. But it, it got, it, it, it got in a position during that, that last strike when it, with, 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 we and the police were all out that our names was not being held in the best esteem. People were coming by and throwing stuff at us on the picking line and cussing and everything. And, uh, so it got pretty bad, but, you know, our numbers were pretty large then. We had we had somewhere between 1,700 and 1,900 people. But people had really, on the second strike, had really, they had really gotten together and and uh, we had really solidified. And in my opinion, that's when this union first started getting any teeth because everybody stuck together. And then it became uh, synonymous with, with problems when you just you just say you you know you need to, you need to remember 1978, and and things would uh, ease up a little bit around the stations because a lot of the old captains they gained respect for people because we did help them out times when there was some some pretty bad fires and and they were down and out so uh, if there was a loss of, uh, any potential loss of life our our folks moved in until the mayor took all of our turnouts and air packs and stuff away from us and that again just united us even stronger because here we were doing the right thing and they stopped it. So then when the clergy came in, uh, that's when you saw some really movement on trying to bring this thing to a resolve. One of the things that always stuck with me is when we did go back, all the fire stations that had been used and what was torn up and everything else, they were ours to try to straighten up and clean up and, and make them livable again. So it was a, a, a really bonding time there because everybody was looking at the, the fruits of your labor, but we had to go back in and clean these things up and, 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 and do all the stuff that we normally did. And Mark, before we get to, uh, well, what brought it to an end in the end, uh, I, there's a couple other things there. One is I don't want to minimize the clergy's involvement and uh, sticking with us as, as strikers and supporting us. They also did that in 1968 with the, uh, Martin Luther King sanitation worker strike. Uh, clergy played a role in that strike and, mm-hmm. and the ending of that strike. And, Same guy. And the clergy played a role here in, in the uh, in the firefighter and police strikes of 78. But one thing happened, uh, too, during this uh, police and fire strike at the same time in August. There was one night where the power went out in the whole city. Oh, yeah. The city went completely dark. And... Uh, you talking about being scared. I was at the union hall with one of our other uh, negotiators on, on the negotiating team because we were manning the phone lines 24-7. So we actually didn't know if they had shut down the power at our building and were coming in to arrest us or what, what was going on or we were under attack. We just didn't know. Everything went black. And so we crawled out the back door of the building 
started looking around and we realized everything was black. Well, the first thing that comes out, obviously, is uh, oh, the strikers have done something to the power. As it turned out, a, a guard that had been hired, a private security guard that had been hired mm-hmm. for one of the substations, actually uh, went in there and shut the power off to the to the whole city. And so... It was, there was stuff that happened like that that you just can't make up. I mean, it, it was uh, scary at the time, but when you look back on it now, you wonder, you know, hey. And that 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 when the city went dark, then all the criminal aspect came out. Yeah. And uh, if if uh, you needed to break in a place, uh, uh, now's a good time because the whole city's dark and all the alarm systems are shut down. That was the same night that they set the fire station on fire that 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 my my buddy and myself got arrested. They said we started the fire and got scared and put it out, but somebody started it, and and we don't really know who. But as Danny was talking about this, the whole city was was dark, and all you could see throughout the whole city was fires burning. I mean, there was fires in certain parts of town, but they were educated fires. There were people that were burning down old buildings. People were setting their their failing businesses on fire, all kind of things like that. But it was fires all over the city, and and there was a curfew on, and so they started arresting people that were on the picket line that that night. But uh, as Danny said, that was an eerie. Nobody knew what had happened until later on. So we we thought, what crazy son of a bitch went out and 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 and, and shut the power off, you know? Because they were the, the the frenzy was at that level between fire and police. But as all this was going on and we were becoming stronger together, we were being hated more and more by the citizens of the city. And so, uh, as Danny said, when the clergy came in, there was a, a Catholic bishop, uh, Bishop Dozier, who actually did more to settle the strike, in my opinion, than all these others. A lot of people took credit for it. But it was something that, you know, our, our people, the, the very first time that we went on strike, uh, after a payday passed and we didn't get a check, a lot of people were wondering, what the hell's going on? We didn't get a check. I said, boys, you're not working. You're not getting a check if we're not working. So we had uh, a lot of people that didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of uh, 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 things that happened that that actually gave us a black eye in, in some things. We did have some people that got caught with gas cans and stuff and Going over to vacant apartments, we did have uh, one or two people that went to prison. We had two members. Two members got arrested for uh, starting fires, but that was it. And they were arrested. They lost their jobs and and went to uh, were convicted. So. But we know a lot of businesses that started had places set on fire because, I mean, it was a it was a pretty good time to do it if you had a failing business because the obviously response time was 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 not very good. And even when they got there, there wasn't a lot of, of, of strong effort, mainly just covering exposure and checking for, you know, any occupancies or anything. And it was it was it was it was very hot in, in August. So one of the things that occurred was we didn't have people that were stored up in homes and houses and stuff, you know, vagrants or anything because it was so hot in there. So that was a plus on going in and doing any any size up or anything. Uh, but. It was some trying times there for everybody during this during that time, fire and police. But uh, that was one of the times that a, a lot of stuff happened in the city, and and it took a long time to overcome that. We did lose some benefits at the next election uh, by the citizens on the referendum vote. But that that particular night when the power went off, I, I think everybody in the city was was afraid. Even the national guard, they didn't know what was going to happen. 
So you kind of lead us in, Thomas, to, you know, the citizens had a referendum that took some of your benefits. How did the politics for you guys change and the negotiations and everything change post-strike? You know, was it successful overall? What kind of struggles did you have kind of getting back from the strike? When we settled, I think it would you would ask different members would give you a different opinion yeah. of, of whether we were uh, successful or not. But what happened was uh, we, we, again, federal mediators in, uh, we go downtown and we're, we're meeting at the uh, federal building with our federal mediators in. And uh, obviously the business community was putting more pressure on the mayor and uh, clergy was putting pressure on the mayor. Newspaper to, to settle this thing, uh, and uh, the citizens obviously were wanting. It. And and to be honest, I think our guys were, uh, as Thomas said, when you start missing checks, missing paydays, some of our guys were ready to go back t- to work. So how it ended is we reached an agreement uh, uh, there at, at in the federal mediation, uh, and uh, the agreement was that basically the the base wage didn't change uh what they offered us didn't change uh we did pick up what we call a a a bonus day out of it but the main thing that changed is they agreed at that to set up and and we got a a wage reopener uh it was three-year contract but we had a wage reopener and they agreed that before the budget was going to be set the the following year that we would get a uh, a panel uh if you will a fact-finding panel that would come together get all the facts, we'd have a chance, and it would be uh, uh, 60 to 90 days before the budget was completed, and this panel would make a recommendation on what our salaries would be. And that was the main thing, is we got away from negotiating uh, after the budget was set. And if the long-term benefit, if one thing came out of the strike that's still in, in, in place today, that it has the long-term benefit for this local union is that is that, that we now have negotiations moved ahead of the budget and we can now negotiate economic economic, uh, things in our contract and then the budget is set after we... uh, and, and we also also were able to maneuver a dispute mechanism out 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 of that so we we had we had some resolve to to buy to go from the mayor to the to the full council and and uh a lot of people didn't look at it as successful at the time because you know we 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 didn't recoup any money we didn't we didn't get really any any benefits well we got we got the same we got the same offer we had when we went on strike june 30th but uh with a little bit of with the with the bonus day and some other things thrown in there but uh that was that was about it as far as the economic part of it, but the the long term effect I think was how we changed things going forward. Well, I think the I think the long term effect from from my perspective is that we actually put teeth in the union. As you look back now, it's been a long time, but one of the things that occurred is we were able to accrue some 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 benefits over the years through this negotiations. Danny was talking about that we actually had a fact finding panel. I mean, we we were starting to get where you could hold over for your for your buddy. Uh, we were all getting seniority bids on vacations. We were able to get some some ways to get times off, uh, different things like that that nobody ever fathomed at the time. Because prior to all this, if you were one minute late, you were suspended, 
and you were suspended for 12 hours for one minute. And the only reason you're suspended for 12 hours because you came in and worked the other 12 for free. So when you look back and, and all the older heads, when we, we look back and see some of the things that have changed at the time, and I don't want to look to try to glorify a strike. I don't mean it like that because it was some really tough times on people's families. There was a lot of divorces, a lot of things that occurred. But if you, as you look back from 1977 forward and you look at the, the things that we've enjoyed for multiple years, it was a direct result of the strike and the strength and the teeth that was put into Local 1784 after those times occurred. And that was going to be my last question to wrap this up is the lingering effects of the strike. And you talked about the, the teeth that got put into the union because of this. How about the reputation when you go to sit at the table, when you're, when you're at meetings and you're at those power lunches in Memphis? Uh, does that still linger today? We're going back. I think after the strike, we uh, a few months in, uh, later, we hired a uh, the local union hired a PR firm to help us with our public relations. We were already involved with the city. Uh, we had started a charity program in 1975. Uh, we were involved with United Way. We were the largest contributors to United Way in the city for uh, public employees and groups. We were uh, doing payroll deduction for the uh, local 1784 charity program, which was started prior to the strike. And we were giving money to uh, St. Jude Children's Hospital at, at that time and, and other uh, charities, but mainly St. Jude Children's Hospital. So we were involved in some charity work even before the strike. And after the strike, we had to build back our uh, public relations. The citizens, there were a couple of votes. Uh, they, they put a uh, referendum before the citizens, and we now call that our impasse referendum. And the referendum basically says uh, we can no longer go on strike. It put it into law. But what that referendum also did, it created what we now refer to as our bargaining ordinance. It created a mechanism where we now have an ordinance in the city of Memphis that identifies uh, collective bargaining for the public employee unions, and it set those uh, deadlines, and it set the impasse, and the impasse goes to the to the city council. So so that started that, and so the citizens voted in favor of that, one, because they didn't want another strike, but they also realized that, that the firefighters needed a way to resolve their disputes. Then I think the local uh, over the years and under T- Thomas's leadership, oh, since uh, I left in 2000 as, as local union president and Thomas uh, was the vice president at that time, and he took over. But we've continued with our community programs and with our charity programs and uh, building up our reputation. You have to work at it, constantly work at it. And you never can take it for granted. And I, I give Thomas a lot of credit. He's he's uh, well-respected in, in the business community and the labor community here in the city and, and, and in the political community here in the city. He got a lot of respect and uh just continued with the programs that we were doing and, and it built upon that and still have a charity foundation today that really started in the seventies and uh, just expanded over the years. And now, yeah, now we have a foundation, but let me back up just a little bit. Uh, when you ask how we were, we were looked at, uh, obviously over the years, uh, the Memphis fire department has been the number one rated service in the city. Uh, obviously from 1978 on up into probably the early eighties, we were, we were really struggling because not so much of the, 
of the citizens who were still pissed off in some degree, uh, some of the old city council people, but the the newspaper w- would crucify us at every chance they, they got. Back in those days, we had two papers. We had one was called the Press Center. It was fairly it was fairly friendly toward us. The commercial appeal, which is still going today, was so anti they just tore us up. So it took us a while to overcome that. And as Danny said, we did that by by starting to participate in in neighborhood neighborhood associations, charities, and we became again the good guys. And we've had some some up and downs, but it's just like today, right, right today in Memphis, the Memphis Fire Department, we're not the highest paid, but we're the number one rated service in town. So when we passed this referendum just recently, just show you this is a direct correlation of, of the strength the union took when we, we passed this referendum to restore pension and insurance for uh, firefighters. The citizens voted to tax themselves something that I don't believe would have ever happened had we not continued the work of 1978 coming forward. Have we had some ups and downs? Absolutely, just like anybody. But we've continued to grow. Our local has continued to grow. We, we now, uh, we go out and, and, and we visit every rookie class, spend several hours there with them, telling about the union, answering questions. We've done a lot of things. We have over 740-something retirees that still belong to this union just out of uh, loyalty and respect for what the union has done since since the strike. All of these, the majority of them, a lot of them were here. And, and so to look back then when we finished and we went back to work and all we did was work to try to clean things up, as the years have, have gone by, I have a little contract book in my hand. It would have never occurred if 78 hadn't occurred, and I don't believe. So, yeah, it was tough times. There's been times that we've had to, you know, really try to rebuild on the image of the local. But at each each point in time, it's been successful and, again, highly respected by the citizens of Memphis uh, today even. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, any final thoughts before we close out the show? Well, I, I'll close my part. Guys, by saying that one of the things that you look at now is with the strength of the IFF, state associations, local unions, and the work that's being done, we don't have to look and see where there's a need for another 1978 in Memphis. We've become more educated in in union activities. We've become more politically savvy. There's a lot of things that have occurred over the past and in, in, in my life, in my, I've been an IFF member now 52 years, I think, 51 years, working on 52. And the things that have, have changed at the IFF is a big contributor, in my opinion, to why we can get along now without uh, strikes and, and, and without the ability to strike because of the power that we've accumulated in D.C. and around the country and the support that we give each other when, when we have the problems, I, I think is a, a strong message that strikes occurred not only here but in other places, but there are a lot of things now that we can do that are a lot more effective than going out on strike and, and having bad things happen. Yeah, I think, as I said, the one thing that's changed uh, – 
closing thought is that we now have a mechanism in place, and I think this is a message. We, Memphis has a good labor management program. We got a, we got negotiations. We have contracts. We have a way to resolve our disputes, and we're not forced into negotiating after the after the budget has occurred. And we still have some of the same arguments going forward that we had back in, in those days, you know, where they're spending a lot of money on capital improvement projects and it frustrates our members where they think, well, they got all this money for capital improvements, but they got no money uh, for us. Uh, the wages here have improved. The benefits uh, have improved. Uh, a lot of uh, stuff in the contract is vacation bidding, uh, seniority bidding for openings and and things that are important to our members that are you know people care about and uh, it's not economic but they they care about those things so we we set up a system I'm I never advocate for strikes but I'm not ashamed of what I did in 1978 it's something that happened uh, the frustration built. It was going to happen if the city didn't change their ways, and they didn't change their ways. So I think, in a way, we were forced to do what we had to do. The thing that that sticks with me is we're all individuals, but when fourteen to sixteen hundred individuals came together in 1978, they moved the ball, and they moved the ball in a positive way. A lot of negative reaction at that time, to be expected, but. History will show that it had a positive impact on the citizens here, and it also had a positive impact on labor relations in the city of Memphis. Well, there's one thing that's for sure that occurred and is still occurring today. The, 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 the administration of the fire department today has improved the working conditions, the equipment, and everything else, and a lot of that was attributed to what occurred then and a lot of things being put on the table that that basically laid on the table, but have steadily come off the table as years have passed. And and right now, uh, Memphis enjoys a, a, a great labor relationship with the uh, with the fire department uh, and and parts of the city, not all of it. Uh, but our working conditions here are are very very strong. Just with the past pandemic that we went through, all of our people got got tested on duty, got shots on duty. It was unheard of in, in, in a lot of parts of the country, but it was due to the union work and the labor management that we have that had come out of 1978 that a lot of this stuff has occurred. So I, like Danny, are, are, I'm not only not ashamed, I'm, I'm proud of what we've accomplished since 1978. Well, gentlemen, I'm proud that we've had the opportunity for the two of you to come on the leaders in this international, not just in Memphis, but the entire international. And uh, it's been a privilege to be able to memorialize this event in, and really spread the history uh, of how things proceeded in Memphis and, and what you've gotten out of it. So uh, District Vice President Danny Todd, President Thomas Malone, thanks for joining us today. It's been a real privilege to, to do this episode today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Guys, it, this was eye-opening, and I, hopefully a lot of our younger members have listened to this podcast and understand the sacrifices that went into making firefighting such a great profession that it is today. Because I guarantee your efforts didn't just change Memphis. They changed all the communities around Memphis, probably most of Tennessee, as we moved on. So thank you for everything that you've done and everything you continue to do for our IFF. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, Doug, that wraps up another episode of the IFF podcast. Uh, Definitely 
a history lesson for the ages. Absolutely. Danny and Tom knocked it out of the park on an important subject. Uh, it was really just, you know, as, as long as we've been doing it, they've been doing it longer. And I really looked at this as, uh, you know, one of those shut up and listen type type deals where That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Really have nothing to contribute except the microphone for them to talk into. And, uh, you know, they knocked it out of the park. They provided a great story. And, and I really hope that this gets out there. I really hope that people take this kind of story into consideration moving forward. And they understand how instances like this in the past move the union forward. And I hope a lot of our young members, all of our members really realize Memphis wasn't the only place that went through this. These guys did a great job explaining what they did. But there were a lot of labor strikes in the late 70s and early 80s. And like I said earlier, that's why we have what we have today as firefighters. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us on this episode of the IFF Podcast. Please make sure to uh, catch out all past episodes. Uh, you can catch us in any one of the stores that advertise their podcasts. And uh, catch us online at the IFF Radio Network at IFF.org. Until next time, be safe. Take care.